Hello, and welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and with me today is Allison McDowell, who is going to take us on a journey into what is going on today, where we are headed, maybe some parallels with things that have happened in the past, and we'll get into all kinds of interesting topics. So if you would, would you please give a brief introduction of yourself and where you come from so that we kind of know where you are coming from, at least? Sure. So I my my general bio that I give is that I'm I'm a mom and I'm an independent researcher based in Philadelphia, and um, I started following Money and Power uh, after a bunch of school closures by Boston Consulting Group in Philadelphia in 2013. Um, I eventually started a blog called Wrench in the Gears in 2016, and Ooh. have been focused on sort of looking at social impact finance and poverty management um, in a city that is a, a large city with a lot of technology and um, uh, poverty uh, that's being managed. So we're, I sort of have a macro and a micro lens on what's happening around the world. And my background is in art history and historic preservation, I mean, cultural landscapes. So weirdly, it seems like the landscape that I've um, ended up tracking and mapping the most is of uh, these predatory financial systems. Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. We've talked a lot about economic systems on the show, as well as um, the education system. So sounds like some really good tie-ins there. Um, one of the first things I wanted to start off with is kind of a framework for the conversation would be that I've heard you talk before about how the old models of profit and control are starting to fade away and we are shifting into some new models. And uh, this could include things like stakeholder capitalism, the fourth industrial revolution, the Great Reset, all of these wonderful things that are going on right now. Um, could you kind of explain that framework of uh, what is the old system? How is that not working? And what is this shift we are going into? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, my 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 framing of all of this is is sort of I'm self taught. So, um, you know, I'm coming at the the economics and the politics from sort of what I've been putting together based on really looking at what industry says its plans are. And, you know, what's coming in the Great Reset, I think many of us are aware that it's far greater than clearly like a health biosecurity apparatus, that there is going to be this other piece melding in of the sort of air quotes, green sustainability movement that's going to be sort of also data-driven in the financialization of nature. Um, and it's all about really remaking the planet as a computing system, really, um, and re remaking natural life on the planet through synthetic biology. Um, and so the economic construct, the capitalist construct, that there is a growth imperative like built into capitalism, that there has the economy has to grow. And within that traditionally, it was, you know, through consumer culture, and then it became through debt finance. And now we're sort of up against a wall, I think, both in terms of broadly carrying capacity of the earth, you know, in terms of our normal understanding of consumer culture, um, as well as our capacity to carry debt. I mean, most people are, um, you know, extremely uh, debt ridden. And now with the Great Reset and the shift under the Fourth Industrial Revolution towards like 
large scale automation, uh, automation of uh, white collar work, knowledge work, other types of work that is anticipated, many more people will be dispossessed. So how does one continue to have a growth economy in a world of finite resources where the traditional understanding of work is no longer going to be on the table because it's it's being co-opted by robots and telepresence gig laborers and, and algorithms. And my sense is, is that what's coming is being embedded within sort of a faux progressive language of social impact finance, where essentially they're going to say, oh, that capitalism was a bad plan. Like now we've, we've, we're mending our ways and we're going to do the good version of capitalism. We're going to use our capital to unlock you know, money to pour into all of these social problems that have been created. And essentially, a lot of that is going to run on data and sensor networks that are built into um, the Internet of Things, the Internet of Bodies, the Internet of Bio Nano Things, the Internet of Everything. And in this surveillance state that is coming to track impact uh, for social finance uh, deals that are going to be underway, these new innovative debt instruments, it is essentially creating a virtualized universe where we will exist um, as digitally twinned individuals, societies, environments. And so my sense is, is that capitalism is almost inverting. And so our consumption will be reframed in virtual world building. And the technology that's going to enable that pivot to happen is, is blockchain. Because what blockchain is, is a, is a ledger for tracking digital assets, not simply cryptocurrency in the way we traditionally understand money functioning, but in all sorts of other assets. And so that inversion will happen and we will become digitally twinned existing in parallel universes, which conveniently, um, I think, will be framed as having unlimited growth. Although it will certainly ultimately be limited in some way because there still are energy requirements and mineral requirements and all sorts of things to build these virtual universes. But it will be different than our normal understanding of material consumption. Yeah, that makes sense. I, uh, I was curious, you mentioned the Internet of Bodies. Could you outline that a little bit more? I've heard you mention that in other interviews, but I don't even have a full grasp on what that is. So, Yeah, well, so my first... Um, encounter with this was a couple of years ago, and it was a piece by Roberto Viola, who was with the EU, and I think he was like the telecom, you know, director of the EU, and he talked about the internet of humans. And I remember being incredibly off-put by this idea of the internet of humans. And ultimately, the idea is, um, that has been coming for the really the past 20 years, is the idea of um, the internet coming out of the devices that we normally interact with it and laying on the land. And this is called Web 3.0 or the spatial web. So the idea is that, you know, sensor networks are now tiny, you know, they're embedding sensors into everything. So the, the, the sensor most everyone is familiar with is, is a smartphone, right? That's a big sensor device that you carry around with you. Uh, some people have, you know, Apple watches or different sort of sensors that track where they are, that deliver, um, you know, uh, geolocation data and other sorts of data that, that, that link you on your body to the larger internet. But the goal in the next version of the internet, the spatial web, is that the entire world will be 
augmented with a layer layers of data, almost like a GIS map where you can like choose how many layers of information you want, right? On, yeah. on the map, you can customize the layers of data that are laid on there, that that will actually be in the physical world and that you will interact with that world um, through some sort of um, augmented lenses, uh, whether those are like eyeglasses, contacts, um, ways in which that you will be able to access additional data on the world. Like you would be able to know, um, you know, I, I say, you know, before you walk up to the restaurant, what its health rating is, right? Like now they have the little piece of paper that says, you know, you scored 98.6. You would just know, you would know the taxes they pay. You would know, you know, if what the last sale of the property was, there would be all of these layers of information that could potentially be accessed. Um, and that is this next layer of the spatial web, but it is all in relation to you as a digital icon moving in this digital environment. And so that is what the digital identity system that is coming with these um, medical passporting systems is supposed to be, is that it, it identifies you as a digital asset in the larger digital environment for tracking purposes and data aggregation purposes. Um, so again, right now, the Internet of Bodies, most people think of it as their phone or their tablet or their smartwatch. Increasingly, it will be other smart wearable devices. They will be brainwave monitoring headbands. They will be smart clothing with nanotech, smart shoes. Um, the ultimate goal in the Internet of bio nano things is um, bio, bio sensors, like graphene-based sensors where your real-time functioning ostensibly as they frame it of, of your biological processes will be transmitted to the cloud. Um, smart houses nest, right? So, so how you um, interface in your lived environment, um, smart toilets, um, <laughs> all of these things are part of tracking you against your environment in this internet of bodies. And so ultimately the, the goal is, you know, I live in a house that a row house in Philly, it's in the, 1885 is, is when it was built. And we still have like the gas caps that were here before it was electrified. And so there was this transition in the built environment of electricity where at first you had knob and tube and your these electric wires were really visible um, along with the gas <laughs> systems. And then eventually the wiring went into the wall to the extent that you stop even thinking about electricity really as a thing that you might not have. It's just hidden, it's invisible, and you just tap into it whenever you need it. And that is their goal for this next version of augmented reality is, the, is that through you know, the, the internet of everything, your, your thoughts, your encounters will all be just transmitted as digital information um, in the physical environment and you won't even think about it. But will we see that in my lifetime? I mean, I'm in my 50s, early 50s. You know, it seems like it's going pretty fast, but I'm not I'm not totally sure how long what the time frame is. Yeah. yeah and you mentioned the um, the what was it? The medical passports, the vaccine passports. Uh, those are the things that have been talked about a lot with covid. And uh, I, I think like you have been a little more worried about digital identity as a whole, regardless of what gets detached to that. And I'm sure medical history and vaccine history will be there, but there's just so much else that is going to be compiled there. And so 
what would you say that this whole COVID pandemic has contributed to these shifts and these moves, as well as maybe the role of a future crash? Would you need to, say, bring down the old system in order to shift into the new system? Or do you see more of a smooth and gradual transition? Well, I don't have like insider information. So all of this is sort of conjecture. Um, True. <laughs> before uh, the the health stuff came on the scene, I had thought that there would be a slow transition um, because what I was seeing with blockchain identity, digital identity, they would frame it as the World Wide Web Consortium has been working on this for quite some time. And they frame it as self-sovereign identity. Sometimes you hear that. Um, and so MIT and Learning Machine had developed digital identity systems for uh, educational transcripts. And I knew this because I was coming into it from the education space. And so their framing for this world of automation was that you would never be done with your education, that you would always be chasing new skills because of AI and the speed of the changing economy, that you you would always be um and in, in having the world of labor automated through artificial intelligence and having it happen on a global stage through like telepresence labor and haptic robotics and things, you would always be chasing these new badges. And so you would have a blockchain identity that would hold all of your skills. Almost like at the time I was thinking healthcare codes, like when you go to the doctor and, and there's all these coded systems that your, your, your skills in the labor force, as well as your mental state and your your you know compliance status would be logged as codes in this online blockchain transcript and that was rolling out through southern new hampshire university which has a huge online presence and also there were pilots in in dallas and tulsa and also going through the un refugee uh, programs so i was like okay well that's how they're going to do it they're going to sell you on free college um, they're going to get like the high school kids to enroll in community college dual enrollment. And they'll say, hey, but the catch is, they won't call it a catch, but hey, look at this handy dandy. You can have your transcript on your phone and it will be, you know, a blockchain transcript. And won't this be great? And so that's how I saw it like gradually stepping in. But clearly that was only going to be a very small subset of the population. And and <laughs> global public health crisis was not anywhere hmm. in my on my radar at all. Like I, it should have, in retrospect, there were clues that should have clued me in that that managing people's um, physical bodies through medical sensor data should have been, but it, it wasn't. And so I knew, and actually I like I wrote several pieces in, in April of last year um, saying, okay, this is going to bring a digital identity scenario. This is this is the trigger event because if, especially if you can set this up as a bio, an interest of national security around the world and you have asymptomatic transmission is, is the framing that you can assert that anyone who cannot demonstrate that they're innocent of potentially having an illness is a threat. And then you capture the whole world. Then you really capture the whole world. And additionally, um, a lot of the narrative that was framed around disproportionate health impacts for people with chronic illness, diabetes, heart disease, asthma, those are all going to be social impact markets. So it, you had the added benefit of create market shaping for these future uh, systems of wearable technology, wellness behavior compliance built in. So like it was just, I could just see it laid out from the beginning that this, that this was the plan. Um, as they shift to this new version of labor and this new version of human capital management, 
you know, you, you hear it talked about like as, um, you know, skills, middle skills jobs, the future of work, the Markle Foundation is central to all of this, the Lumina Foundation, um, Jobs for the Future, which has taken tens of millions of dollars from the Gates Foundation. And essentially, the skill building is to keep people busy so that they can't overthrow the regime of the right. Internet of Bodies, because they'll they'll never have enough jobs to give to the people who have earned the skills badges. But as long as they can make um, welfare to work programs conditioned on participation, they can keep you busy so that you don't have any time to actually organize an alternative with other people. And so that's what's going to be coming is this combination of what we saw happening under Clinton, like the welfare reforms with the Internet of Bodies and something like a universal basic income that that I've always felt the plan is to put that on blockchain. It will never be no strings attached. It will always be conditional and tied to your biometric identity so that they can track um track you and how you use that digital currency. Um, the, the piece of that, and that's what, you know, it, it's very clear for those who've looked into it, you know, you can't live on a thousand dollars a month. That's sort of how they're framing it. And so essentially what they're doing is setting up human beings as investment opportunities for global capital. And there's something called the Global Education Futures Forum, which was advanced. It's now gone offline, but you can still find things on the, the Wayback Machine of their website. Pavel Luksha, who's a transhumanist that was who's based out of Skolkovo, and he's with the World Skills Building Program. Uh, the U.S. contact was Tom Vanderark uh, with former Gates Foundation and now a, an EdTech venture capitalist. And so they had a foresight document map of education up to 2035 were based on their understanding of the situation. They were forecasting how things would emerge. And, and they specifically spoke to human capital portfolios and that there would be such things as people nares, which would be almost like a billionaire, but what you would be wealthy in would be portfolios of human capital, of people. And so knowing that you won't be able to survive on UBI for $1,000 a month, you could then, if you if you have the right um, data profile, become an investment commodity for um, transnational global capital, whether that be individual, you know, investors or investors in um, investments of insurance companies, banks, religious um, endowments, and that sort of thing. And, and they will be the people nares. And that will be the little bit of extra money that you might get for complying, um, you know, demonstrating the behaviors through where with wearable technology in the smart environment that the investors want you to perform. And that will be the future of work. It won't actually really be any real work anymore. It will be demonstrating compliance to the system of domination. So how would that actually take place like um so you have a an investment hedge fund let's say that wants to invest in a certain type of people a certain data profile how would they actually do that or do we know well so this is very much linked to like the the derivatives market and this is what i realized when i started doing my education work was that um you know i had serious concerns about 
the role of educational technology in the schools and what that meant both for sucking capital into private hands that really shouldn't be used for children, um, as well as data surveillance and, um, you know, benefiting these technology companies. Um, but what, when I followed the threads back, it wasn't simply venture capital firms that were involved in this. It wasn't simply um, firms that were investing in the technology companies or the cloud computing companies or the finance of the products. It actually went back to the hedge funds, which doesn't make a lot of sense until you understand that the new derivatives market is going to run on people. And so even in 2010, um, in the United, and this is a global program, and especially they're targeting um, the global South, Africa, and India, because they're, they're counting on those children to build this uh, spatial web, because it actually has to be coded. It's not fully manifest yet. Um, and it's a colonial project. This is a highly colonial project. Uh, in, the, in, in the UK, there's something called ARC, um, absolute return for kids. And it's backed by the hedge funds. And Arpad Busson, I believe, who was a French financier. And even in 2010, they were talking about him having an annual fundraiser for ARC, absolute return for kids, where they had 800 hedge fund managers attend a single fundraiser. So this is a decade ago. And there's no reason that that many hedge fund managers would attend such a fundraiser unless they understood what the coming market was. That these children were not going to be allowed to have their own careers, but that they would be bet on as data commodities in this new um, internet of humans that was being laid out. And so, so this has been a long time in coming. The most specific example that I can give now, and a lot of these are still in proofs of concept stage, um, in the state of New Jersey, which it's interesting, if you look at the history of New Jersey and you understand like Bell Labs, um, mm. the, the early, like the signals intelligence industry of New Jersey, because, you know, I don't really think a whole lot about New Jersey, but there's a lot there. Many of the hedge fund um, owners, they either live in Connecticut or northern New Jersey. And there's a lot of insurance companies in New Jersey and big pharma also in New Jersey. And, and for such a small state, it's an interesting profile. And so New Jersey actually enacted something called career impact bonds with social finance. And social finance is a key player in this space. Uh, it was created by Sir Ronald Cohen, who's the father of UK venture philanthropy, uh, venture capital and social impact philanthropy. He created, he's a Harvard MBA, very connected and um, has created social finance, not only in the United Kingdom, but in the United States and in Israel. And so they've partnered up on these career impact bonds, which is for the reskilling of all of the people who've been put out of work by the lockdowns. So the, the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, is a former Goldman Sachs executive of over 20 years. He's a Democrat, but he's working for the financial apparatus. And most of these uh, human capital bond programs have are running through the central banking systems, particularly the San Francisco Federal Reserve and Ian Galloway. And a, a number of years ago, Ready Nation, that's setting up these markets, there was an event that he was at. And he said, you know, 
the one thing you know about social impact bonds, which is, is what Ronald Cohen created, is that everyone is different. The only thing that you can be guaranteed about the social impact bond is that like Goldman Sachs's fingerprints are all over it because they created the market out of thin air. And so the fact that Phil Murphy is setting up these career impact bonds to reskill uh, labor into specific target uh, industries for the fourth industrial revolution, which are smart energy, uh, pharmaceuticals, and coding. And I think there's one other one, but you couldn't just do anything with your income share. It's, it's through income sharing agreements, which is essentially a contractual obligation that if you get a job that meets certain conditions, that your wages will be garnished to pay back the person who invested in your training. Okay. So there's a platform called Edly. Um, and Edly was specifically built to securitize income sharing agreements. Now, every year, there's something called ASU plus GSV. So that's Arizona State University plus Global Silicon Valley. Um, Arizona State University being Michael Crow, who was the founding chair of InQtel, the, oh. the venture capital arm of the CIA. And so they've been working with um, Silicon Valley on all of the educational technology. And in 2018, they described the fact that they were planning to securitize income sharing agreements. And at that point, it was framed as four-year college, that they were going to open up giant new global equity markets and in income sharing agreements. And this is being advanced uh, through Purdue, Purdue Global and Purdue Foundation in, um, is it Ohio? Purdue, Ohio. And so, so this was all set up in 2018 already, the income sharing agreement securitization that Edley was going to be the platform for it. The gentleman who created Edley, his name is Christopher Riccardi. And Christopher Riccardi is the grandfather of collateralized debt obligations. He literally created the same derivatives products that sank the global economy the last time in the real estate market, in the toxic mortgages. And the same people are setting up toxic debt finance in reskilled labor for this gig platform labor um, that's coming, that's coming post, you know, whatever, you know, whatever tiny gap of time we get between health emergencies being called. So that's sort of what it looks like. And I guess the question is that we have to, to see if they can scale it. In addition to the, the, um, the income sharing agreements in New Jersey, they have a number of proofs of concept. They're after the children, specifically uh, pre-K, and we're hearing that coming out of the Biden administration. And this is an equation that's based on um, research done by Jim Heckman um, out of the University of Chicago. So the Chicago boys. Uh, funded by George Soros and J.B. Pritzker to get a, 10, a 7 to 13% rate of return on early childhood investing. And that's everything from home visits uh, for um, low-income women on Medicaid who are pregnant, all the way up through pre-K to third grade reading scores. And that's all going to be securitized as um, investment markets. And those markets have started. The first one was in Salt Lake City. Um, and that was Goldman Sachs. And even the New York Times questioned the metrics for these uh, social impact bonds in pre-K. But that's not going to stop it because the plan is to get all of these children on blockchain um, so that they can securitize them and trade them as global debt instruments. And the fact that so few people are talking about this is really 
difficult. And the fact that people are not what is most needed for this new form of human capital finance, it's based in something called um, it's predicated on predictive profiling and future cost offsets against public services. So it's weaponizing the entire social safety net. And what it does is it uses data, even of unborn children, to predictively profile their potential costs to society. And then they say that they will usher in some sort of evidence-based, and I put air quotes on that, data-driven solution to fix them preemptively. And so the cost offsets are uh, the prison industrial complex, unemployment, depression, um, addiction, all of these things have a cost offset component to them. And so they will profile a child using things like adverse childhood experiences, ACEs scores, trauma scores, to say they will have all of these terrible bad outcomes before any of them have been realized and then use that prediction to enforce data surveillance on those children and then say that they preemptively fix them and then scoop up money into um, the coffers of the Goldman Sachs folks. And it's, um, it's kind of intense. But all of that is linked to getting everyone on blockchain, getting everyone with a unique digital identifier and getting them tracked and normalizing uh, digital surveillance in this uh, sort of biosecurity panopticon that's being built. Okay, so to clarify this, in one of the first examples with the income sharing, that would have been investors buying in, and then the individual who was tokenized and invested in is basically paying them back in the future, whereas some of the later examples in the education system would be these investors stepping in, um, uh, air quotes, proving that they made an improvement on these children. And then would that be the government that would then be paying them back for this? Yeah. So right now it is the, it's an, it's predicated on the idea of an outcomes based, like a pay for, for pay for performance government contract. And these contracts, this structure goes back to the late 1990s. Um, an economist, his name is Arthur Rolnick, he was a head economist with the Minneapolis Federal Reserve. And so he and a gentleman named Stephen Rothschild set this up. Um, it was a program around uh, incarcerated men and get doing workforce training for them. And it all sounds kind of well and good. You're saying, oh, well, you know, these there's corruption in government contracts and kickbacks and, you know, insider deals. So we're going to have, um, you know, track that, that we're getting our money's worth for our government investment. But what's happened in the meantime is that the technology of the sensor networks, the wearables, the predictive profiling, the AI, and the digital identity systems are such that all of that can start to be automated. And that will start to be automated within, um, I believe, these smart contracting systems on blockchain, whether it's Ethereum or some other type of smart contract system. And so increasingly, you will be subjected to, you know, performing um, tasks where the, the only verifier becomes a digital, that there's really less and less human, human hand in the process. Um, and so it becomes really repressive in nature. So it, it, the, the, the structure of the outcome-based contract goes back to Rolnick, who was working with Jim Heckman. And this gentleman, his name is Robert Duger, who is a fund manager for Paul Tudor Jones of uh, Tudor Investments and the Robin Hood Foundation. Um, but the thing is, 
the governments are only going to be able to pay these deals back for a relatively short amount of time until they become bankrupt. Because if you understand the economic model is that the rich don't pay their taxes because they've got them in offshore accounts um, and the poor don't pay taxes because they're not working, ultimately, the public-private partnership that social impact finance runs on will go under fairly soon because they don't, um, they'll run out of money. There won't be any money. And so the next next phase, once that happens, they've already teed up something called an impact security. And this came out of a, a woman who was a Wharton alumni. Um, it's called the MPN, as in Nancy, P as in Paul, X as in xylophone, NPX uh, impact security. In this scenario, there's not even any government involved. A nonprofit would be able to issue debt investors would be able to invest in that debt. And if the performance measures were met, a foundation would pay them back. Hmm. So essentially the people receiving services, whether that be a child in preschool or some, an incarcerated individual or someone suffering from addiction or somebody who's homeless, they become a battery to generate the data to flip, to launder the money through the system. Because all of these companies have their philanthropic end. And so I, I say, for example, you've got a pre-K franchise that wants to do data analytics. They've got a social impact finance deal for their preschool and they issue debt and say um, that, you know, and they're going to use Hewlett Packard tablets to collect the data on the preschool children. If you have Hewlett Packard maybe fronting money for this investment deal, when the impact metrics are met, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation can pay them back. Hmm. And so essentially the children just become the process by which the money is shifted around. And I sort of equate that to at that stage of the global economy, those players and, you know, a lot of them, these are, you know, this is going to be BlackRock. This is going to be the Vatican Bank. This is going to be SoftBank or the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. They're in the back room playing poker and they're trading money amongst themselves over their bets on their human capital portfolio. And, and just so people know, all of the stuff that's happening to people, specifically poor, the poor, the ranks of which are going to grow enormously, the same financialization is also happening to the natural environment, too. So all of the things I'm talking about financializing toddlers, the same things are going to be about like financializing, um, you know, endangered species or water, you know, systems and watersheds. All of the same things are going to be happening on the other side. And, and Corey Morningstar and a wrong kind of green have done a lot of work on the green side of things. But there there's these two pieces and it's all framed under the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. All of this is legitimated under this sort of faux progressive idea that we're actually solving poverty and saving the environment when really we're just putting sensors on everything and building a global prison planet. Well, you kind of brought me exactly where I was going to go for the next question. And that would be uh, getting into the nature side of thing, because uh, the way that at least I have been framing things is that we have a natural order and then we have a manipulated by man order. And um, so the natural order of things is one that we would say is predicated on 
um, mutual cooperation and nature and nature's systems and these types of things. And then the manipulated version of that is just people controlling and changing and adapting these things themselves to suit their own needs. And those are kind of the the two branches we have. And so with, um, it seems like the way you're laying this out, the natural order, whether it be in human beings, the way that human beings naturally are and what is good for them, or whether that be in nature, all of this is getting commoditized and used in these new economic models and profit models and control models. Um, so with that and with the nature aspect of this, uh, I have in the past wondered about land and energy in particular being used to, say, back money and have a, quote, hard currency. Um, but there are obviously many other ways that that could play out with the social impact bonds and that type of model applied to nature. Um, could you give, do you have any examples of how that might be uh, being looked at by these powers that be? So I have to say my, my focus is, has been more on the, the human side because of my entry point. Um, I will say, so a lot of this is framed as it's sort of a war on carbon, <laughs> which is really interesting when you think of like people being sort of carbon and water. Carbon-based um, life, yeah. Right, carbon. And, 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 you know, I've learned a lot from Tom Cowan about the water piece too. It's like the, the, the water and the carbon together. Um, and so, yeah, like I feel like there is this, this push towards a silicon base, like life on a chip. You'll hear that a lot, like life on a chip. And... So in, in many respects, they're weaponizing nature to, to manage humans, like to manage human behavior. And so within the social impact finance space, one of the key players who's also sort of dropped off the radar, but these people never go away. They just regroup in another form. It's called IXO Foundation. And I would encourage uh, people to Google it. And um, they have like a two and a half minute video about sort of blockchaining the world. And, you know, I saw that about three years ago and that plus um, some of the videos of Richard Branson's group at Necker Island about like wanting to do Finclusion to, you know, put all of the global South on blockchain for capitalism really sort of shaped my view of understanding um, the world of like blockchain transactions in a way that probably isn't what most people come at this with. Uh, but IXO Foundation, which was based in Switzerland, we're working with a group in South Africa because, again, this stuff is really racialized to do a, a model pre-K uh, blockchain program. And this was a government reimbursement program for pre-K children where the government would, would create a token, an impact token for every child who attended pre-K for on a given day. And that there was an app called Ampli, and this app would, would track the children. And they actually framed it that the children were building social capital. Okay, so that was the, one of their proof of concepts of, of children as human capital. Their other parallel project, which speaks to the nature part, is that and nature meaning carbon, right? Like the carbon control part was that they were pushing Internet of Things enabled cook stoves in Africa uh, to say that, that, the, that people should not use wood uh, to heat their homes or to cook their meals, even though it was their cultural practice to do so because there were negative health impacts and there were impacts around carbon. 
And so that they would give them instead an Internet of Things enabled cook stove. But it needed to have a sensor that would track exactly how much they used it so that they could um, know exactly when it was turned on and when it was turned off to maximize the data collected to justify the impact to get their return on their investment. And so for me, there were these two pieces of like, they didn't really care if it was a child or a cook stove. It was just something creating data that they could run their financial models on to, to create their profit. Now, the other piece of, of this um, on the nature side of things is, and but again, it's always humans interfacing with nature and controlling humans in, in, in relation to the natural system in ways that never address, address the structural nature of the problems, but justify the management of, of targeted populations. So another thing that they're talking about was impact verification. This was a woman, Ann Connolly, who worked for IXO. And they talk about last mile verification. Um, blockchain is, is discussed as a trust mechanism. And I, you know, I put air quotes around trust. It's all about trusting um, and automating these systems because of globalization. Because you don't know those people. They're not your neighbors. They're nobody. So you have you have mechanical trust systems that are built on data analytics. And so one of the, the last mile verifications that they were talking about automating were things like uh, cleaning up uh, litter in waterways, you know, on beaches or on rivers, and that you could have an investor that would invest in a solution to clean the environment, to clean the water. And some of them might want uh, to justify the trust, the impact metric, that taking a photograph of a bunch of collected bags of garbage would be sufficient. But another investor might actually uh, want you to use an Internet of Things enabled scale and they would want the weight of it. And so all of these things would be automated, whether it was from a, a, a visual record with a digital image or a metric number that was connected to an Internet of Things enabled scale, but that there would be this automated verification. But it was, again, managing people in relation to nature. Um, the other the other element, which I think at this point is really just a thought experiment, but there was a gentleman, I believe his name is Larry Lohman, who's in the United Kingdom, who has um, a, a really nice piece from a couple years ago called, I think it was like Earth, Earth Machines and Trust. I'll have to look that up. Um, it was shared with me by um, an agroeconomist. His name is Clive Spash. And I would have to say, if you don't know Clive Spash's work, you should definitely look it up. His, his focus is actually on degrowth and natural systems. And he was one of the, the early people on, early on to understand the financialization and the really predatory nature of the carbon cre uh, uh, credit trading systems. And he came out of an agroforestry background. His background is actually in forestry. Um, but he shared with me this paper by Larry Lohman about um, blockchain and one of the scenarios they talked about uh, was advancing a thought process by which a forest would incorporate itself on the blockchain as a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO. And that this forest um, 
which is essentially would be a corporation created in code and that once it was activated, there would not necessarily be any human involve, uh, uh, involvement in the operation of this forest would earn credits um, through, you know, sensor tracking about carbon offsets and would over time accumulate digital assets that it would use to hire pruners or sprayers or acquire additional land um, and these sorts of things. And so in that way, the natural system becomes part of this planetary computer. And I have to say, I have real concerns around knowing that all of this is embedded in that the World Economic Forum has united with the United Nations, right? Essentially, they are acting as a single entity at this point. And, you know, for, for many years, the United Nations has been sort of a, an advocate of the voices of indigenous people of the world who were seeking uh, redress um, against maltreatment of empire in different, you know, colonized countries, right? And so when they would seek um, a, around their rights, their human rights and their natural rights and their sovereignty, they would appeal to the United Nations. And so there's a, a very connected part with the United Nations and indigenous voices. And so we're hearing more and more lately around uh, the rights of nature. Um, and it sounds, if you understood it from an indigenous worldview, from like an original people's, from a, the point of view of being a good relative, certainly, um, water systems, mountains, think sacred natural beings and systems and ecosystems should have rights. Um, but my profound fear is knowing the direction things are headed within the United Nations and the World Economic Forum and the financialization of nature is that the rights of nature are very likely unless people stand in to, to stop this from happening will be reframed as this DAO model, as, as a prohibitive model, um, a punitive model that will ultimately favor corporate fascist interests over the rights of the actual indigenous people to whom those sacred lands belong and penalize them because most of these um, faux greening movements are actually about removal of the people whose ancestral lands those are into off-site locations where then those lands can be ravished out of the sight of most people. And so that is my sort of profound concern about the intersection of uh, blockchain uh, DAOs of natural systems and um, financialization of nature and impact investing and sort of corporate greed and co-optation of truly authentic, better ways of being in the world that simply the people who I think are participating in good faith often would never imagine that that might be a future that's on the books uh, by some of these uh, technocrats. Yeah, and that makes sense the way that you had framed it earlier, that uh, these aspects of nature are all in how man connects with nature. It's not just nature itself. And so this example that you are um, having these fears about would be one where nature is used to control man and basically kick out the indigenous peoples, for example, um, for the, quote, rights of the natural area. And then, like you say, it'll probably just be used for the profits and control of some sort of corporate framework would likely be the scenario. Um, 
you keep mentioning uh, DAOs, and that would be the decentralized autonomous organizations. I have mentioned that before, and uh, it, but it's been way back in season one of my podcast. I actually mentioned, I uh, talked about blockchain technology just in general. And at the time, I did mention tokenizing people and uh, oh, DAOs. <laughs> and I mentioned Cardano, which is one that you've emailed me about as well. Um, so I, I don't know if all the listeners listening to this interview have listened all the way back to season one or not, but um, these things have at least been roughly outlined then. So you can go back and listen to that if you need to. But um, those are things that I specifically want to bring out because back when I was bringing up those subjects, I had a much more rosy outlook on things. I was much more positive about it. And at the same time, I did state some concerns that are very similar to kind of what you're laying out, that having a public ledger that is immutable is kind of the ideal piece of technology for any dictator or technocratic regime, and that's not such a good thing. And so I would like to get into the aspect of of DAOs, because that is a totally new model. If it's a, it's like a corporation, but there's not necessarily a board or a human being or a CEO at the top. Um, when you talk about a DAO of a natural system, I would imagine there would have to be some sort of either some sort of AI that was managing that, or would it possibly be token holders, so to say, that I own this token that the forest created, and uh, therefore that gives me the opportunity to vote and make proposals on what happens with this forest. Um, how does that actually work with a with a DAO versus the corporate model that we all know? Well, I think a lot of this is evolving. I mean, I think they're thought experiments, um, and we haven't, you know, it hasn't fully evolved yet. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people frame like this idea of decentralization and, um, you know, tokenizing as, as, you know, they, they have an affirmative view of it. Um, I guess my question broadly is, you know, where do we stand on the spatial web, right? Because the end game of the spatial web is essentially it's a parasitic force to, towards a transhumanist goal. I mean, they're, the Japan Moonshot Project, which is advanced by their science and technology agency, which is backed by SoftBank, you know, the, the world's largest, you know, innovation fund in AI and robotics. It's channeling a lot of the money from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund and upon te uh, Telegraph and Telephone, which is advancing 6G technology and digital twinning, has said, our vision is by 2050, people will exist outside the need for a physical body and mind in time and space. And in order, and that's the transhumanists, like, I mean, we're moving from cybernetics to like the internet of bodies. I have a phone, you can track me on my phone to I have, you know, a neural link, some sort of, you know, brain machine interface to essentially, um, I'm part of the matrix and I'm trapped in a closet, but my avatar, you know, walks the world or whatever. I can't remember. There's some Bruce Willis movie where that happens. Yes. <laughs> so um, surrogate or something like that. So I haven't watched it, but somebody told me about it. So, and in this world, in this five and six, seven G world, I mean, they have many G's planned out. There's the, the vibrational radiation component that will likely poison most of the rest of the natural planet, right? And so if we think back to the natural systems, 
in, in, if we were to um, look at an alternative to the planetary computer world, the virtualized world that they're building as a world of sacred relationship um, in which, you know, people, you know, I, Robin Wall Kimmerer is, is a woman whose teachings I really appreciate. She's a, um, a biologist at the SUNY Forestry School and she's citizen Potawatomi Nation. And she talks about, you know, the humans being the youngest siblings, right? Like we should sit back and we should learn from the other beings in the world because because we don't really know what the heck we're doing, right? And so we, we, we build a virtual world and we kill off all of the other beings and that's not at all being a good relative. I mean, I think at that point, you know, life as we know it, natural life as we know it is over. And so for me, this whole premise of the DAO or a block, a digital identity or the internet of bodies, like before we even go there, we should stop and reflect on what has brought us to this point, which I, I've had recently some really um, rich conversations with um, a, a gentleman, his name is Stephen Newcomb, who has spent his life studying the papal bulls and the, the doctrine, he, he describes it the doctrine of domination as domination, as global domination as being the central feature of these systems. And, you know, we have this 400 plus year legacy of domination that's that at least goes back to the papal bulls, that structure of, you know, non-Christians being available to have their lands and their bodies taken from them and erased and, and put into submission. That's why we're at this place now, right? And so knowing that trajectory, do we continue to embrace disruptive innovation if it means that we're going to be forced to live in a virtual world. And then what obligation do we have to people who aren't even born yet um, who won't have that choice? If, if what we decide is to be to join with this hive mind consciousness and um, just be part of an internet of bio nano things and, um, you know, turn our back on all the other living creatures, that's a pretty serious conversation. And I, I, I feel like people need to zoom out and, and have that conversation first and understand what is our responsibility um, to know the history and to face that history in a way that isn't um, simply about, um, you know, earning activist points or woke points or whatever, but to actually reckon with what does it mean to live at this end of the continuum of domination? And then how, how, how does one even begin to heal that? Because I think healing can't happen until we at least have the knowing that it happened. Well, that will be the end of part one of this interview with Allison McDowell. Please come back next time for part two. That will be the final part. I just had to break it up into two sections. The next part is just as good, if not better, in my opinion, at least, than the first part. We get into more of the details of all of these things that she has been laying out. We talk a little bit about historical parallels and uh, get into blockchain at some point and talk about all kinds of things. So uh, speaking of which, I should probably give a bit of a heads up since there are plenty of people that are blockchain and cryptocurrency enthusiasts that listen to this podcast. I will go ahead and inform you in case you haven't figured out yet, Alison McDowell is not a big fan of blockchain and she has, as you have heard, plenty of very good reasons for that. So um, just a heads up if that 
that's something that you are really into, then you are definitely going to get a heavy dose of a different perspective. And that is probably very healthy for you. Uh, Allison and I talked after the interview, and she did make the comment that she felt like everyone should have exposure and education from both perspectives and be able to make up their own minds. We should be able to think critically. We should be able to come to our own decisions and take actions that we feel is right for ourselves. And that is what I try to do on this podcast as well, present lots of different ideas and perspectives, usually alternative perspectives, and let you make up your own decisions on what you want to do with that. So along those lines, the other thing that I wanted to mention was that really starting to get into this interview especially, but the past few and the next one, we're touching on a lot of things that I have covered before and this podcast as a whole has been building up to. I've stated this a lot, that the podcast is intended to be listened to from episode one all the way to whatever is the most recent episode. That's the intention, is that you go through the whole thing because everything builds on what has come before. The, For example, in season one, I did talk a lot about the foundations and their influence, especially in the education system. Talked a lot about the economic system of capitalism and a debt-based society. Uh, that's a lot of the stuff that Allison McDowell is talking about. Did a whole series on blockchain and cryptocurrency and brought up a lot of these things. And by the way, if you're not very familiar with what these things are, you can go back and listen to those episodes. I believe they start on episode 41, if not somewhere around there. And I do break it down to a pretty basic perspective and build on that and get fairly complex by the time we get to the end. But even somebody who is not fully aware of what blockchain even is, should be able to follow that. And then listening to an interview like this or like Vin Armani or some of the others that I've had should make a lot more sense. The same is true with something like eugenics. We talk about that, I believe, in part two of this interview. And that's a topic that I did an entire episode on. And again, all of these things build on each other. So season one was all about the evolution of our society from a macro systems perspective, all about the education system, the governmental system, and the economic system, and how all those things tie together, uh, the corruption and conspiracy involved in those, the alternative movements going on now from agorism to homeschooling to blockchain, all kinds of things like this. That was season one. And then building on that was adding a layer a little deeper for season two, and that was looking at a specific historical historical parallel and historical pattern that we are going through right now. And that would be the time period of the Reformation. And I started talking about how there are so many similarities, not just with historical patterns and cycles, but also with uh, technology and how as technology progresses and changes, how that has an effect on society itself. We talked a lot about these things in season two. That was season two. That's what it was all about. It was going that step deeper, looking at this historical example, and that really highlighted a lot of the things that we are going through and that are coming up. And that was before COVID. And I would say that a lot of that was pretty prescient considering how things have gone since then. Well, then in between season two and the upcoming season three, 
has been this series of interviews and personal episodes that I did. And these are all ones that also go even deeper than season two did. So I get into more about historical cycles and patterns overall. The Dim Age series with Vin Armani especially talked about that. Get into some spiritual components as well and get into some of the details about what's really going on. That would be this Allison McDowell interview. We really get into some of these details of this shift of what we're headed into. Talked a lot about the philosophy of that with Vin Armani and Julianne Romanello. And I tied a lot of this together with the content from season one and season two in some episodes that I did before these most recent interviews. And those were more topical. And I had a whole series on COVID that I felt holds up really well. And so all of this stuff just builds on what has come before. And so if there are things that you are not following very well, you're not tracking very well on, you don't understand kind of the references or even just the frameworks that we're building on, then that's probably because you have not listened to all those other things because they do build. And at this point, I'm not going to go back and explain the basics of blockchain. I'm sorry, I just don't have time for all of that. So if you need that or want that, I Ideally, you should either way go back and listen to all of that stuff so that it can build, so that you can have all of this background information, have a lot of this depth. There's a lot of depth to even just the random things that Allison McDowell is mentioning. She mentions a few things and and it just kept coming up in my head. She mentions the Gates Foundation. And it's like, well, yes, when I talked about nonprofits and foundations, I actually specifically mentioned the Gates Foundation. This was probably a year before COVID, talking about how they were an up-and-coming foundation that was following a similar model as the Rockefeller Foundation and some of those connections there. I mentioned that as well in, I guess it's an exclusive episode. I think the only one that's still exclusive for supporters, the Rothschilds episode. If I remember right at the end of that, I also talked about the Gates Foundation as kind of picking up where some of these others have left off. And I also talked about inclusive capitalism and a conference that was held around that. And that was all about the stakeholder capitalism, this new model, the Great Reset, all of these things. And again, this was well before COVID and before all of this was what it is now. And so the point is, please go back and listen to that stuff if you haven't already, if this is of interest to you and you want to get some more depth out of this. I would also like to say thank you to Cynthia. She is the most recent supporter of the podcast. So thank you very much for joining on Patreon. I have Patreon as well as Subscribestar. And so that is very appreciated. If you do want to choose a topic or a question or something like that for me to address on the show, please send that to me. And any other supporters that are out there that have not done that yet, there are a few. You are welcome to do that at any time. Another thing, I got an email from somebody I'm assuming is a listener, sent me a link to an article that sounds like it fits in with a lot of the stuff we cover. But if you just send me an email with a link with no explanation of who you are or what you are telling me, then I'm probably not going to click on that because that's just not very wise. So if that is you and you're listening to this, send me another email and just tell me who you are, that you are a listener and you are sending me this because XYZ, whatever, so that it is a little more obvious to me that it's not just a phishing attack or some kind of spam, because I'm not going to click on a random link if there's no context. So other than that, 
feel free to send me emails at any time. Feel free to send me articles and links and things like that, as well as feedback or suggestions or requests or anything. I am always open to all of that. That is at ourfoundations at protonmail.com. Please leave a rating and a review if you have not done that yet either. And with that, I guess I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.